Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Celtic Stuff Live. The only toll-free call-in webcast. Produced specifically for Celtics fans. Celtic Stuff Live. Celtic Stuff Live, everybody. John and Justin here to close out the regular season, preview the postseason, and of course our ongoing dialogue with, you know, what kind of noise can this Celtics team make in the postseason and what might that do for them in the offseason? So no better time to do that. We've got an early release of the show this week, so we're actually broadcasting a few days ahead of time just to put that mark between the regular season and the postseason and also because John and I are going on vacation. So uh, things just happen to line up perfectly that way. Our guest on the show this week, Ryan Bernardoni from Celtics Hub and Celtics Reddit. You can follow him on Twitter at, at @dangercart. And also a quick programming note as we get started because CLNS Radio has got you covered for the postseason. I'm going to be doing the postgame show for Game 1 and Game 7 if necessary for the Celtics against the Hawks and Celtics beat will not be released this week until 8 a.m. on Sunday. That's because of the late game Saturday night or later game Saturday night. Make sure you download the CLNS Radio mobile app to get it effortlessly delivered to your listening device upon its release Sunday morning. You know, the postseason shakes everything up, John, but our eyes, maybe not so much on getting even to the Eastern Conference Finals or getting to the Finals. Obviously, we would love that for the Celtics, and that would be that would be uh, 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 over uh, uh, over expectations for the season. I think I had them pegged at 44 wins. You had them pegged at 43 wins. They do 48 wins. They get the fifth seed, and we will talk about our predictions for how this week was going to go on our show that was released Monday in just a minute. But I think this team exceeded my expectations overall, and I think now that they now that we know they're in this bracket against Cleveland. That's the eye, right? Get by the Hawks, make some noise against Cleveland, and use that to vault you into the offseason. Yep. No, I think that's right. I think that, that like you said, you know, going into the season, I think you and I were probably a little bit more uh, conservative in our estimates of what this team could be doing in the, in the through the year. Uh, I, you know, there were a lot of prognosticators who were in the 48-49 win territory. I wasn't comfortable there. While I like the team, I thought the East is going to be better. 
So, you know, a 48, 48, a 49 win team last year isn't worth the same amount this year. And one could argue the Hawks are a good example of that. Uh, 13, 13 wins less this year uh, than last, uh, being a 61 team last year. However, uh, you know, I think that in the Celtics case, I think they rose beyond that uh, a great degree. I thought that they were, not only were they been a, they would have been much more than a 50-win team uh, last year with the effort they had this year. I mean, so many, you know, tough, you know, there was that tough stretch really before, um, you know, the turn of the, you know, the end of the, of the, the calendar, calendar year, I guess, year. Yeah. You know, in December. And, you know, they really have played well ever since. Uh, not, I wouldn't say consistently. I wouldn't say that they've been hitting all on all cylinders throughout that period. But it's a long season. You can't expect that. So what do we have now? We've got the opportunity to put a put a nice topper on the season. Put yourself in a position where the lights are the lights are bright, the stage is set, you've got everyone watching, everyone is tuned in, they're they're seeing how these different teams are doing, and, and you've got a chance right now to put yourself on a stage for those free agents, for the agents, for everyone who is out there trying to gauge what this Celtics club is in the future. I, I agree with Yanni's comments that this is not a contender right now. I don't think either of us would disagree with that. But what this does, a solid effort this year, puts them in the consideration for things like Kevin Durant. It puts them in consideration for other, not even mid-tier free agents. And that, to me, is is the biggest thing we're shooting for right now. We're not looking to win the NBA championship. We're looking to be the champion of, hey, those guys are pretty excited and new. I might want to join them. That's what we're shooting for right now. And and oh, by the way, we got the third worst uh, with the pick for the third worst record, and that's that's a pretty cool thing too. Yeah, that's really the thing that the Celtics have going for them that no other free agent offseason. Uh, potential landing spot for even, like you said, mid-tier or high-profile free agents. That's something that the Celtics have going for them. Love the fact that the Nets did finish the season one game behind, or I should say ahead of Phoenix in the in the lottery uh, standings, which is, is fantastic for the Celtics. And, you know, even then we move up a few spots just based on playoff seedings, but to consequence that, Celtics will not be hosting a home they will not have home court advantage there will not be an extra home game if the series were even to have gone 7 games there won't be an extra one at home they don't have that advantage and you and I talked at the beginning of the week before these final two games and I predicted that they'd split and land in the fourth spot and I think you predicted they'd win both games and land in the fourth spot but here we are they did do the split they have this amazing comeback against Miami and we discussed whether there was merit, and Steve Bulpet certainly poo-pooed it. We discussed whether or not there was merit to the Celtics just resting players because injuries are the number one concern, as you mentioned. If you look at the beginning of the season, that whole let's iron out the rotations thing didn't get solved until they really went on their run in the new calendar year. And when they were healthy in the new calendar year, they were a formidable opponent for anybody in the league. Then the injuries came to Kelly Olynyk and Jay Crowder, and that obviously influenced their performance. So the question in the postseason is, are they going to be healthy enough? And if they are going to be healthy enough, we are likely, in my opinion, to see them succeed like they did 
at full strength with a set rotation during the heart of this season. So I like their chances, but again, there are still question marks on health, both Isaiah Thomas, Jay Crowder, and probably not Kelly Olenek. And even if Jay Crowder is 100% healthy, his conditioning has still been something that he's trying to get back to where he wants it to be, and that could be a factor. But if they're playing their best, if they're healthy, if they play like they did in the third quarter with the largest comeback of the NBA season in 2015-2016 against the Miami Heat in the closer, then I think that this team has, has got a bright, bright – uh, opportunity and a bright outlook in the at least the first round of uh, the playoffs against Atlanta. And I guess, you know, John, I get one of the things that, you know, I look at that that comeback against Miami, part of me wishes they did land in the sixth spot still. I mean, if they weren't going to get home court advantage, you know, we didn't want them in the bracket with Cleveland if we could if we could help it. But no better barometer than for them to play Cleveland. And it, does it really matter when we're talking about the offseason? I know it matters for how far and how many postseason games they play this year. But when we look at the matchup against Cleveland being sort of the barometer for the progress of this team last year versus this year and high, profiling, not profiling, but you know, making that progress out on the, putting that out uh, for the stage, for the, the free agent offseason, does it really matter when we play Cleveland? No, I think you're right about that. I mean, if if the Celtics, let's say, in a for instance, the Celtics are, if they were in the three six bracket, and they win the first series, you know, six games or so, they get to the second round, and something happened to Toronto, and for whatever reason, uh, you know that somehow uh, Toronto loses to Indiana. Well, if you beat Indiana, is anybody slapping your back and saying, hey, way to go, Celtics? No, nobody cares. You're a better team than them. You should beat them. It's still an accomplishment to make the Eastern Conference Finals. But where the Celtics are going to be judged is how far are they from the top. And you're right. The only way you're going to know that is by going against the best. To be the best, you got to beat the best, right? That's what everyone always says. And I think that's true. I think you, that you do have to measure yourself against the top tier. And, and Cleveland is the, in the East is far and away the top tier in my mind. So and, how many games do they have to take this series? If they get to – I don't want to look past Atlanta, but I'm just, you know, as, as we kind of set up the goals for the postseason, how far do they have to take Cleveland to show progress? They got swept last year. Is one win enough to really put any kind of a statement? Or do they have to get this to a Game 7 or get it to Game 6 and fight very close to the nail down the stretch in Game 6 for that to be – sort of recognized progress and and that this team is is continuing to fight or or is it really just how the games are played in general even if yeah. they did get swept I, I think it's i think that's that's the latter because and 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 the flow of the, of each game you know if the Celtics were up let's say let <laughs> this would never happen let's say you're up games up, up three games to two okay you go into into Boston with game 6 we've seen this against LeBron the full, before um and somehow we're not able to close out. That would look a lot worse than if the Celtics lose in six, but you know, far hard to get there. You know, I mean, there's a, I guess there's a there's an ebb and flow, and there's a narrative that will be created by how that series goes, and they're just gonna have to you know fight and 
kick and scratch and claw and everything else to, to do that. And I think if they do that right, I think it's going to be successful for them. The one other thing I wanted to bring up, too, is that, you know, people were talking about with, with the Atlanta series or going into the Atlanta series and the seedings and, and all the, you know, I was have, just going to go there. Are you yeah. upset with the seedings? I mean, well, the tiebreaker I, with these, you know, four teams yeah. all crammed up with the same record. Well, look, I, I think that's, I think, you know, seeding helps. And we, I talked about this. I said, I've been talking for weeks about how I'd like for them to be either three or six. Okay. But going into, going into the game, you know, the, the, the heat game, and even more so at halftime, the most important thing for the Celtics team to do, it does not matter what their seeding was at that point. What mattered is that they showed that they could be the Boston Celtics we'd seen since January 1st. And we hadn't seen that team in almost a week. So being able to recapture, hopefully, that their 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 DNA, their their who they are as a team, I think goes way beyond seedings, because the look, the Hawks well that harkens to Bull Pet's point, right? That was right. his whole point. Yeah. He didn't care about the wins and the losses. He just said it's about getting this chemistry right. It's about getting this team where they need to be mentally for the postseason. And they were all very frustrated that in the end the game and its outcome and that comeback didn't have any bearing on you know, the seedings, because I think they were hoping for at least home court advantage and, and possibly the three seed. But if they wanted that, they had to beat Atlanta, they had to beat Charlotte, and they had to beat Miami. I mean, that's really what it boils down to, is they lost to two of the three teams they were competing against for that middle spot. And had they gotten one more win, instead of going one and two, if they had gone two and one, they would have locked up the third seed. So that comeback, to your point, hopefully is launching them into the postseason that they don't come out flat. They learn from that and really stay with that aggressive perimeter defense that they are sh- that they showed in that third quarter that helped them get that comeback. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree with you more. That's that's the thing. It's showing the showing who they are, showing what they can do, be the team that they, they can be. And then and then working from there. Now I wish they had more than half of basketball to lead on before going into it. But, you know, even as somebody, you know, I was a stalwart believer that they could, you know, if they could get the six or the three, that was perfect. Hey, they were, they were in a survival mode going into that, that heat game or let alone, or let, let alone at halftime. So being able to take where they were and say, look, this is the most important thing. I know a coach would say, hey, that's, that was always the most important thing. But I think once you lost that, that Hornets game in such a, I'd say, embarrassing fashion, certainly less than great fashion. I think everything went out the window. And you can say, look, we got to just recapture who we are. Because it doesn't matter what your seating is. If you go in there playing like you were, it they're going to get swept. We'll be lucky to, to get to a fifth game against any of those teams. Now, if they play who they are, they can beat the Hawks. They can beat the Heat. They can beat the Hornets, and it doesn't matter, 3-6. Then you get to the second round, and you reset, just like you were saying about earlier. Yeah. Well, are you upset about them being five when they had a better record against the three-team in Miami? Just to close that thought about seeding before we dive a little bit into Atlanta and really just tee up the interview with Ryan Bernardoni, who... 
I know is going to uh, spend a lot of time talking about the Hawks and the matchups and right. you know what do the Celtics need to do to win. I, you know we're not gonna we're not gonna exhaust that conversation before we speak to our our guest for this week. But are you upset about them being? I, I've seen a lot of a lot of commentary on Twitter. How is Miami ahead of Boston when Boston had a three to one advantage on the season series? Now it's you know, and and it's the rules. So you know, you've got to know going into it that them's the rules, right? I mean, you've got to. That's there. There is a reason that they give preferential treatment at this point still to teams who who win their division, and you know, the, the, and it's only preferential. It doesn't matter in the seedings now. It's not like they well, the league already took some of that power away. It, well, it did in that it took away the ability for it strictly to based upon head to head versus conference record and so forth. So basically, once they did put Miami in that position, where you know Atlanta lost. I mean, Atlanta is the one that really screwed this up. Let's be, <laughs> let's call that for what it is. Atlanta could have had the third seed. If there's anybody who should be upset, it's Atlanta because Atlanta beat us, and then they choke it away against the Wizard of all teams. The Wizards, whose whose coach is hanging on by a thread, whose whose best player was was suspended from practice because he was mouthing off to the coach, and. You know, and, and the Hawks lose to them, and we're worried about the Hawks. I mean, what the hell is that about? You know, so they're the ones that really choked this thing away and really blew it up for everybody. Um, so no, I'm not upset about it. I just the thing is, is as you said, if you lose, if you win one of those other games between against either Charlotte or, or Atlanta, this isn't an issue. But you know, you, you yeah, know, if you Celtics, want it, you've got to take it. If exactly. you want it, you've got to take it. All right, so looking ahead of the Hawks, which player on the Hawks do you think is going to pose the biggest matchup nightmare? Or And again, I know we're going to get into it with Ryan Bernardoni, but just as you view this series from a broad perspective, who is the number one concern on that Hawks club for you? I think it's Millsap. Millsap's the guy I worry about just because he can do so many different things. Um, and I don't th- The Celtics right now, don't have a lot of guys who are like Jay Crowder, or who are who are Jay Crowder's size or a little larger. It's it's Jarebko and Crowder, and that's it. And I mean, that's going into the postseason, or going into the off season. I think that's an area not to replace Jay, but I think that that small forward position is one that needs is is really the most glaring area of need in my mind. So. That to me, I mean, first of all, Millsap is a good size, you know, four. I mean, he's not, he's not small. He's six eight, but he's he can do everything, and so it, you can put Crowder on him, and that will, you know, I think that's probably the best we can do right now. But he's Millsap really fits in between playing him against our bigs and playing him against our our, our small lineup, and he's so skilled that he can do the things some of the, the, the smaller players on our team can do, but he can also bang with the big boys. Um, you know, so it would be interesting to see what they'll do. I, I don't know. I mean, what, what do you think? I mean, Well, here's, what, here's how about? I'll – yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that I'm worried about Jeff Teague, not because I think he can dominate our on-the-ball perimeter defenders that are really that, that – those two, Marcus Smart and Avery Bradley, really – give the Celtics the best perimeter defense in the league. But 
if Teague is going off, it's a sign that things that the Celtics are slipping. So I'm going to answer it differently, and I'm just going to say that the guy to watch is Jeff Teague because if he's on fire and he's busting loose, it's a sign that something's going wrong with the Celtics at their strength. Where they can beat Atlanta is on that perimeter. They need to stop getting – they need to – Put a stop on the ball getting into the post, especially early in the shot clock, so it's not in and out, in and out. You know, they need to make sure that if that ball gets into the post, it's only got one shot. And then I also think, and I'm going to follow up my answer to if Jeff Teague is going off, it's a sign the Celtics aren't working. I'm also going to say the player to watch on the Celtics side that could really have an impact is Amir Johnson. Because what we know about the Hawks is that their front court is very mobile and they can really get around the floor. And that's, again, ball movement. Some of the reasons that the people are comparing Boston to last year's Atlanta team is exactly that reason. The way they play together, the way they move the ball. And I just think Amir Johnson has mobility. We didn't see it for most of the season, but coming down the stretch... He was all of a sudden, you know, he's getting to the rebounds. He's moving better on the floor. He's even providing a lot more offense than we'd seen. And I think Amir Johnson, if we see him having an impact on that series, that that's a good sign that one of the areas where the Celtics are struggling usually, or might struggle especially against Atlanta, is going right. So those are the two players on the Celtics side. I'm watching Amir Johnson. If he's doing well, then the Celtics are doing something right as a team. And if Jeff Teague is going off for Atlanta, then I think the Celtics are doing something wrong as a team. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's a good that's a good point. You know, this is this is a, a Hawks team, as you said, that you know they're they're not going to maybe pound at the post per se. I mean, they are a spread out space and pace. That's you know, that was that's their hallmark. But if you know, inevitably, you're going to get a Horford or a Millsap around the bucket, and if you're sucking in the the, the help defense from the Celtics off the perimeter, um, that's a sign. And the other thing is, you know, just as you were saying, I think that's a great point because this this Celtics team has not played they had until that second half against Miami where they really started using their defense creating turner turnovers creating their offense from those turnovers that's something we haven't seen from them in a, probably since the the, uh, the golden state game really i mean thinking yeah. back that far so if they can't do that they're not the team that we've seen, and that's what we've been waiting for. So now they've hopefully they've 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 flipped the switch. We used to talk about that back in the old days, right? We talk about how the Pierce Garnett team flipping the switch. Well, maybe this Celtics team flipped that switch back on, and they're really ready to uh, to come back at it with the type of defensive intensity that has been their hallmark all along. So I I, I think those that's a good call. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into it in even more detail with Ryan Bernardoni again from Celtics Hub and and on the Celtics Reddit. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at at on Twitter at 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 <laughs> at Danger Cart. There we go. Uh, and also, don't morning, forget. Folks. Look, I know you're listening. <laughs> it's crazy. Tongue twister. Right? I know it's yeah. <laughs> it's way too early. I've only had eight cups of coffee. Um. All right, so and you can also follow John and I during this postseason run on at 
CSL underscore Justin and at CSL underscore Duke. And of course, download the CLNS Radio mobile app. As I mentioned, I'm going to be uh, posting the post game for game one on Saturday night. So definitely be joining us there. Look for tweets out on the link to so that you can join us right after the game and break it all down. You can call in and give us your takes, uh, your hot takes on on how the game went. Hopefully, we'll be talking about a game one win on the road because nothing better than that to start off uh, start off the series against Atlanta. So fingers are crossed there, and we're now going to go to Ryan Bernardoni. All right, uh, joining me on the line right now uh, is Ryan Bernardoni, who anybody, anybody, if you're on Twitter right now, folks, you know Danger Card, and if you're a Celtics fan, you've definitely been reading his stuff, not just on, on Twitter, on the Reddit page. Um, Ryan has really been, um, as we were talking about before we got on here, uh, Ryan has really been the voice of reason for a number of, on a number of different fronts, and uh, really appreciate his efforts on there. So, uh, and, and as I just have learned, uh, Ryan is a longtime listener of the show. So uh, anyway, welcome uh, to Celtics Stuff Live, Ryan, and thanks for uh, joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's it's great, and uh, as you said, yes, I've been listening to the show for a long time, and it's uh, exciting to be making my first foray into the podcasting world uh, here tonight. So it's really amazing you how Twitter, Twitter becomes. You know, you get followers, and people start retweeting, and you know, people start to to really get a following and start to under understand uh, and really want to follow what you have to say. And I think you know, right on a number of occasions, I've been you know kind of like. Yeah, shaking my head and reading in 140 characters, but also your stuff over on Reddit's just been outstanding. Um, you know, whether it's you know this past summer and 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 laying out the different um, you know machinations of using the cap and directions that Mike Zarin was was probably leading Danny Ainge and things that I wasn't reading certainly anywhere else. Um, but also, you know, going through the year and laying out the plans for KD and and how Durant is a possibility and and Horford and Durant, I should say. Um, so I've been I've been really really uh, looking forward to your stuff on there and uh, really appreciate uh, you join us tonight and and maybe between the two of us we can be the voices of reason again in the wilderness because I feel like Ryan we're gonna get in right into this. Um, I personally feel and I and I I don't know how you feel. But I personally feel that while I don't want to play Atlanta, I have to play somebody if I'm the Boston Celtics. That's that's kind of how the playoffs work. Yeah, that's that's the goal. Yeah, you know, um, and you know, there there's there's four teams there, or, or or I should say, Atlanta, Miami, Boston, and Charlotte. Basically, everyone's got the same basic record. Everyone ended up in the same spot. Why does everyone have the fear of God in them to play the Atlanta Hawks in Atlanta? Well. I think you have to start by admitting that Atlanta was probably the best of the four for the year, but it's not like Atlanta is Cleveland, right? They were, by things like point differential, they were maybe a couple of wins better than the Celtics, um, and the Celtics were maybe a win or two better than, than Miami and Charlotte, and for whatever luck, you know, experience, whatever it might be, those teams all pull together and, and land on the same place. Um, and so my personal feeling on it is that Atlanta's the best of the four, we have to go and play them without home court advantage. So it's not an ideal matchup out of those four. I would rather be playing Miami with, you know, home court advantage for the Celtics. Um, I think Charlotte is a particularly difficult stylistic matchup for the Celtics, but less talented than Atlanta. So I don't think it's a great matchup, but as you said, these teams all have 48 wins. 
and they have one more game at home than the Celtics do. So, um, you know, the sort of odds that are kicking around out there from different outlets saying, you know, it's maybe a 60-40 series for Atlanta sounds about right for me. It's not, the Celtics don't deserve to be favored in this series, but teams that are 60-40 or 40-60 underdogs win series all the time. And this is an opportunity for the Celtics to do that. They have, you know, surprised people last year in the regular season. They surprised people, I think, uh, in a number of fronts this year in the regular season. It's an opportunity for them to go out and play playoff basketball and, and surprise people and, and take a series. So I think it's a winnable series. I, you know, I'm not afraid of Atlanta. I just think that it's worth admitting that Atlanta's probably, you know, starts out as the better team. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, a 61 team a year ago, and you have to give them, you know, a great deal of, of credit for, for that. And, you know, they had some injuries early on this year. Um, there's a number of reasons why they weren't at that same 60-win pace this year. They also lost Damari Carroll, and that was a big loss for them, I think, although Bazemore has been huge for them as well this year. Um, you know, and I I certainly I agree with your analysis. Certainly, Atlanta is a great team. Atlanta has, has a lot of pieces that are tough to match up with. Uh, in particular, I think Paul Millsap is the one that worries me the most. I've heard a lot of people talking about Horford, and Horford, I think, would be, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not against Horford on the Celtics after after July 1st, but Paul Millsap seems to me the guy that the Celtics really don't have an answer for in terms of matchup body-to-body um there isn't that three that that kind of three four guy of great size. I think I don't think Jarebko can be that guy. I'm not sure that Jay Crowder, with his ankle where it is, that he can really be that guy for this team. So I'm really I'm a bit concerned about that matchup in particular. But I do think you know this is a Celtics team that has over, I I think it was a bit overachieved in terms of its talent level uh, throughout the season. And I look at an Atlanta team that that the pieces. You know they're 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 a great team, but there's there's a reason why they ended up with the same record as you said. Offensively, the Celtics seem to be a bit ahead in some of the metrics. Atlanta, Atlanta on the other side, defensively has a bit been ahead of Boston in some of those metrics. Is that a challenge for Boston? Because you know over the course of the year they've had a better offense, yet. I think when we looked at certainly last night's game and over the last few weeks, we've been wondering where that defensive team has been. Is that, do you think, indicative of a, of a series that, or, or maybe the last, last night's second half, that maybe things are starting to shift back, that Boston's, like Stella, is getting its defensive groove back? Um, Sorry, sure I had to do that. To... <laughs> no, it's, it's very, very well done. Um, I, I'm not sure if I'm willing to go that far. I mean, I think the trend through the season has been that as the Celtics have downsized, they have become a more offensive-minded team. Um, and that shows itself in, in a couple different ways, but part of what we're talking about here is just straight pace. Like there's still, both of these teams are really good in terms of defense, in terms of defensive efficiency, uh, and they both play at a fast pace. So, you know, the Celtics, as they have picked up that pace and gone smaller, their, their scores look bigger, but, um, you know, I don't know how much they lost the defensive identity versus how much they made sort of a strategic shift as the, the team changed. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, that that sort of DNA is still there. And I think it's, you know, just critical in this series that, that they show that. Because Atlanta, for what they are, is sort of an interesting team. Um, they've turned into this sort of defensive juggernaut. Uh, and the way they do it is 
basically they don't ever let anybody score at the rim. Um, they're by far, by far, they have the best opponent field goal percentage right at the rim, which seems weird because they don't have a Son Whiteside or Rudy Gobert or somebody like that. But as you said, Paul Millsap is kind of the linchpin, and he's kind of linchpin on both ends uh, in that he's a top 25 um, in terms of block percentage and in terms of steal percentage in the league. So he's he's right at the top you know, in, in basically creating turnovers, and if he doesn't create a, a turnover in denying you at the rim, which is amazing for somebody who's 6'7", six, 6'8", six, uh, and plays alongside Al Horford, who's also sort of in the mold of the Andrew Bogut type uh, rim protectors as well, and that he's just very savvy, and, and he's not he's not going up there and swatting shots into the first row, but uh, he's also you know quite a good rim protector. So the Celtics are probably going to struggle to score, and the solution to that problem is, and I think this has become a little bit um, sort of understood throughout the year, that this is always important for the Celtics, is that they have to create more shooting possessions than Atlanta. They just, that defensive DNA has to kick in. They have to be turning Atlanta over, getting into transition. And I think they have to be crashing the offensive boards because Atlanta is going to force you to miss shots. So they need to be getting in there and creating those extra possessions in that way. Because if they don't, if they're playing a game where both teams have roughly the, the same, you know, number of possessions, then uh, Atlanta, you know, maybe you get hot for a week and you hit 50% of your threes and it doesn't matter. But uh, Atlanta really has an advantage in that case. So I think that that, that sort of balance of, creating possessions and keeping the pace up, but not losing your possession to possession defensive DNA is where the key in this is going to lie in this for the Celtics. And, and, and that also plays into maybe what, what really the Celtics maybe linchpin or they hope is the linchpin of, of where they hope to be, which is creating turnovers and creating fast break opportunities for themselves and, and basically trying to short circuit the, 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 the completely stout and, and, um, legitimately difficult uh, defensive task they face in a half-court scenario with Atlanta. You know, being able to turn them over and get out and and run is is you know that's something that they were able to do in the second half against Miami. How well do you think they're going to be able to do that against Teague, Schroeder, uh, you know, Baysmore and company? You know, the guys will be handling the ball mostly. Yeah, it's surprising, but Atlanta actually turns the ball over at, at a higher rate than any of the other East playoff teams. So I think that that's actually the one place that the Celtics, that and like an offensive rebounding, because Atlanta's a terrible defensive rebounding team. Um, that is a place that they could potentially exploit Atlanta. Uh, you think of Teague as sort of a, a solid point guard, you know, maybe not the top of the league in terms of point guards, but he's a good point guard who you'd like to have on your team. He turns the ball over at a rate that's up with like Evan Turner, um, which is significantly higher than say, Isaiah Thomas and Marcus Smart, who who turn the ball over at a much lower per-possession rate. And Schroeder's right up there with Teague. They turn the ball over a lot. So with the Celtics' ability to put you know pressure on the ball, um, with guys like Jay Crowder able to jump the passing lanes and get out in transition, there's a real opportunity there to create those easy scores that, like you said, if they aren't, if they're not getting those, the, the Celtics are likely to not be able to score at a, you know, at a high enough rate against a, you know, back in transition Atlanta half-court defense. So I think that there is a possibility to do that. Um, Atlanta also forces a lot of turnovers. The Celtics, fortunately, actually don't turn the ball over very often. So I think that's a place where they really have to win, is that they're going to have to win that turnover battle, create extra possessions, get easy scores. Otherwise, um, you know, you can play at whatever pace you want if you're scoring you know, a tenth of a point less every possession than the other team, you're going to lose every game. So, right, right. Yeah. 
it it seems as though yeah that you know if they can if they can turn them over they can win the turnover it's almost like an NFL game if they can yeah, win the turnover absolutely. battle you know they're gonna they're gonna be um, much more successful. I feel uh, like an old school coach saying it, like win the turnovers and win the rebounding and you have a chance like it's <laughs> but it may be the story. It, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, maybe talking about less about the the bigger picture of the two teams, but individually, uh, of late. Isaiah Thomas has had some some struggles. Um, you know, really, you know, we're not sure where the wrist is and if that's really what's holding him up or, or if it's something else. Um, as you said earlier, defensively, Atlanta's going to try to shell and keep you out of those opportunities. Does Isaiah's ability to, to get in and try to create havoc, maybe not finishing at the rim, but creating mismatches, creating, you know, movement through his own cuts and motion, um, is that is that going to be an important way for them to get open and get those those quality looks, or is it is do you think that you know he's going to have to shoot the ball really to you know to basically break that that shell down? Yeah, it's, it's maybe somewhat oh. of that sort of uh, unstoppable force against the immovable objects yeah. thing with Isaiah going to the rim against Atlanta because you know we've seen it all year if if it, if Isaiah is not you know going well and creating then things bog down for the Celtics, and then they end up taking a lot of uh, sort of long mid-range jumpers or, or a decent number of threes. But honestly, the team is terrible at shooting from outside 16 right. feet. Like, they're just atrocious. So what you have to have is Isaiah relentlessly attacking against a defense that's built to stop him. And this is what everybody's been worried about. You know, is he big enough, good enough, all those things to break down playoff quality defenses that are designed to stop him? And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. He has the talent. I don't know how bad the wrist is. If it's an issue, then it's going to be really difficult for him. But, um, you know, he's, he has the confidence, certainly, to give it a shot to, to go and, and take that challenge, right? We know that. Like that's, and that's important. Paul Pierce had the confidence to take, to take those shots. It was, if you don't, there are players on this team who don't always have that confidence, uh, who we may need to step up in this series. People like, you know, you know the name, Kelly Olenek. He needs to be pulling people away from the basket. He needs to be shooting the ball because he's one of the few people who can reliably hit jump shots and hit, you know, get three instead of two. Um, but yeah, I mean, Isaiah beating his man, getting to the hoop, drawing a defender, making the right decision. If he can finish great, he's one of the best finishers you'll ever see at the rim against a defense that stops you there or making the pass and, and relying on his teammates to make shots that they've struggled to make all year, but that, you know, potentially will be there. This is a, I think, on the other side of it, and we've been talking so much about how to beat uh, a very tough, you know, defense uh, with the Atlanta Hawks. Conversely, I think that with the Celtics backcourt, you know, as we saw against, you know, Golden State, when you have a fierce and and tenacious backcourt as the Celtics do, that causes a lot of problems for teams whose whose firepower is focused in the backcourt. This with this team, I mean, certainly Teague and Schroeder can fill it up. The two big guns for for Atlanta are really front court players in Horford and Millsap. Does it put more pressure on on Stevens to go larger, to do maybe to not be who they are, you know, to defend those guys, or do they stay small and try to hope that whoever's in that four position defending Millsap? you think can can try to slow him down enough so that it off defensively he's going to have to move and, and maybe do some things more on the perimeter than 
they'd like. I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what the yeah. matchup there is. Yeah. Well, I think you mentioned the name before and, and said that you didn't think he could do the job, but you know, it, it may come down to, to Jonas Jerebko um, playing good minutes against Paul Millsap in the playoffs, and that's a oh. tough matchup. Yeah, uh, it's not the place that, that you necessarily want to go. But we saw, uh, you know, in the last game against Atlanta, that it's really difficult for Jared Sollinger to hold up in some of these matchups. And I think he's an important part of this series because, as I said, I think that they need to hit the offensive glass, and he's a big part of that. But if you have Sollinger and Amir Johnson or Sollinger and Olenek on the floor, then who takes who? It's it's hard to yeah. get the sort of matchups together because Paul Millsap has become a all-NBA player. Sort of, He's had this amazing career where each year he somehow gets better. Um, and so it's a very difficult matchup. And the one player that the Celtics have who is healthy is, as you said, Jay Crowder. It's a difficult matchup for him if he's having, you know, with, with his ankle issues, is they do have a mobile six foot ten inch, you know, power forward who can stretch him out to the three point line to pull him away from the hoop on one end and on the other end can hold up on the block and, and maybe move his feet well enough to, you know, switch on defense, to mm-hmm. challenge him out to the three point line, to do all the things that you need him to do. It's just that Paul Millsap is a much better player than Jonas Jarebko. So all the matchups sort of look like, oh, this is the player who you kind of have to put there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's a player who plays 15 minutes a night, maybe. And and is, you know, is Brad Stevens going to make that sort of sea change shift in his rotation to, to get that matchup? It's probably not worth it. But that's the player who you look at and you think maybe that player can can get hot, can hit some shots, can, can get a little rhythm on defense and give the Celtics some sort of counter for, for stages of the game. Um, other than that, it's tough. I think they are going to have to play bigger um, than, you know, maybe they want to. They're, if if Jay Crowder can play on Paul Millsap and his ankle holds up, then it gives them a lot more options. But, you know, that's a tough matchup for him when he's healthy. So I think they, like you said, I think they probably do have to go big sometimes. Yeah, that, and that was that was my, my next where I was going to go next is, is Jay. Jay's, Jay's health, I think, is, is really crucial to, to their success here, because I, I, as you said, the Swedish Larry Bird might be able to, uh, you know, do something yeah. in this series. I don't know that I want him going toe to toe, uh, in game seven, a la the original Larry Bird did against the Hawks in 88 and, and yeah. Dominic Wilkins. I don't think we're going to lose that of, matchup. <laughs> with that? We're going to lose that one. I think. <laughs> I, listen, I don't think we're going on a limb with that one either. I think you're safe, Ryan, <laughs> with that. But Jarepko's a forty percent three point shooter. He can. You never know. But <laughs> well, you know, well, you're right though. I mean, I think that the main thing is, is if 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 nothing else, he's pulling Millsap out of the middle of the defense and enforcing guys like Corver and Teague and Schroeder to move their feet and, and stay in front of guys like Isaiah without the help because Jarebko's in the other corner, that, that has a lot of value, you know, and that's, you know, um, that might be, you know, the, the best thing he can do is at the very least force Millsap to pay attention to him. If he can make shots on a, as you said, a couple of game or, or something of that, of that magnitude, that's going to just, that's going to open things up for everybody um, as they, as they get through this. Yeah. It's much more of a sort of an X factor thing there than a, than a matchup you want every single game or like you said, going into game seven, but having somebody who can stand in the corner and, and pull a, pull somebody away from the rim, you know, it helps. We'll take it. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so uh, we've got the Hawks. Obviously, this is, you know, uh, something that, uh, you know, I think most fans were disappointed with last night. I mean, I, 
it wasn't the ideal scenario by any stretch. But the the argument that I was making is that well, it was more important to me, you know, because the argument was, well, they should have lost the game. Well, <laughs> the way they played in the first half uh, was so bad and such a, a continuation, really, of the fourth quarter in, in Atlanta, the game against Charlotte in, in its entirety, basically, yeah. and then and then you know the first half here. That was a, that was a trend that to me said. It doesn't matter. They could be playing the Philly, Philadelphia 76ers. They were lost in four games. So to me, while they won, while they won, won the game, they lost that war. They may have won a, a much bigger epic uh, because they actually turned themselves around, found their footing. I don't think you want to go into the playoffs not having found that footing before you get there. Um, I just wonder your thoughts about that in terms of, you know, throwing, you know, I don't say throwing games, but maybe strategically losing a game so that you could, you know, in the middle of it, so that you can, you know, put yourself in a better position, you know, at seeding-wise. Yeah, I mean, listen, maybe the best thing would have been if they come back from the huge deficit and then Miami makes a couple of shots and they win or something. I don't know. But uh, win the game. You know, if you can, if you can come back in that kind of game and show that kind of fight and, and put on that performance against another playoff team, just win the game. That's, that's the goal. Right. Um, and ultimately, going down to the sixth seed and going and playing Miami, you know, maybe you're a little bit better chance of winning the first round. Uh, there's a pop, you know, people have been sort of focused on the second round. Uh, get out of the first round. I don't care about who the second round opponent is, um, to be perfectly honest on, on that front. And, and I'm not somebody who normally believes in sort of game-to-game momentum. Um, I think that bad games happen. They, they just do. Sometimes you shoot really poorly. Uh, but going into the playoffs, maybe it's different. And, and you have to, uh, no matter how much you're somebody like me who sort of has like an analytics bent, uh, sometimes you just have to listen to the players and the coach. And when they're telling you that the game mattered to them and that coming in with uh, sort of a renewed energy and... Uh, better confidence in how they're playing. If they're telling you that that matters, sometimes the best thing to do is believe them that it matters. Mm-hmm. So if that's what they were all saying. You know, they were sort of saying like, oh, you know, jokingly, like, oh, maybe we should have lost, but no, really, we needed that win. And I agree with that. Uh, maybe it would have been nicer if the seedings had worked out better. They didn't. That's okay. Win this series and, and it, it won't matter. And that game was fun to watch. And, and I enjoyed it. So I'm yeah. not really going to complain. <laughs> Uh, that's, I think that's a good point. You know, you really you need to listen. You need to listen to the to the team. And and I thought that that Crowder's comment about you know maybe we should have lost. I think I think that got overplayed. You know because yeah. he was he was you know kind of half joking about it. And I you know I I think that they as you said they needed that win and I think they recognized that. Um, now I know you you just said you don't want to look ahead. Um, but looking at the entire East, maybe as as a as a whole, um, what do you see other than a, a LeBron James sprained ankle? Is there what what other impediments are there to anyone other than Cleveland winning winning the whole conference? I think the main impediment is that Cleveland isn't really that great. Um, <laughs> It's That's like, a it's good really, one. That's a good really impediment. <laughs> easy to look at. LeBron is great. LeBron is right. a force of nature. He's been playing wonderfully well. But you're playing seven game series, and weird things happen in seven game series. Um, you know, it's the 1986 Celtics had a weird opponent. You know, they end up playing in in their run 
with uh, you know with a, with the Lakers, they end up playing Houston one year because right. weird things happen in the playoffs. And there, you're talking about like great teams. This Cleveland team isn't great. They're not a steamroller that that you know should just be assumed to pass through to the finals. They might they might do that. They might steamroll the league. They may have a great couple of weeks, but they also might have a bad week where they lose a couple of games on the road and it gets to game seven and they go cold for a quarter because that's how three point shooting works and there's variance involved and and they get you know a little tight and and they lose and Toronto could certainly beat them. Um, there are a lot of people who have been sort of stumping for for Miami and saying, well, if they, if Miami had Chris Bosh, maybe they could beat Cleveland. I don't think Miami can can do that unless unless basically LeBron like forgets what team he's on and starts passing it to Dwayne Wade or something. I don't I don't see that team you know being competitive with them. Atlanta or the Celtics or for that matter Charlotte would have a chance against Cleveland. Uh, they would be significant underdogs, but if you, you know, I said before, if you have a 40% chance of winning the series, that's a way better chance than a 0% chance. If those teams had a 20% chance, a 25% chance of, of beating Cleveland, well, they're going to play two teams like that. You know, they're going to play Toronto and another team from that sort of class that, that could certainly beat them. So I don't think anybody in East is unbeatable. Um, I don't think, you know, Detroit's going to beat them, but, um, you know, there's, there's possibilities out there that, that you could have somebody else representing the East in the finals. I thought with the, the model that LeBron and, and the Cavs used last year, which was LeBron basically taking over the playoffs for a good four-week stretch, or well, no, longer than that, I should say, yeah. more like a six-week, you know, six-week stretch until, you know, you know, one of some of the until Cle, until Golden State got its breath and figured itself out, it seemed to me that that um, uh, that that there was really he was really kind of running the show, uh, and and you know no one else seemed to be able to get an answer, but that's not sustainable over a long period of time. I would think. I mean, that's that to me, you know, as you said, they're not a team. They're not a strong team. They they have an amazing focal point, but but. The pieces aren't aren't cohesive, um, and they don't they certainly don't work together in any way. Is do you think it's as simple as as you know? Well, I don't say as simple, but you you definitely. I mean, is this? I don't want to say this is the the year, but is this is this as good a year as any since maybe two thousand ten that LeBron James could get knocked out of the playoffs before the finals? Given yes. those yes. issues, it's certainly certainly since since 2010. Yeah, the, the all the Heat teams were better than this Cavaliers team, um, and the Cavaliers team that entered the playoffs last year was probably better than this Cavs team, even though that team didn't last very long. And as Cleveland fans will remind Kelly Olynyk, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, but I I just don't think they're a great team. I think they're probably the fourth best team in the NBA. Uh, I think you know any of the top three in the West. Are better than they are. I think they're about the same as the Clippers. I think they're a little bit better than Toronto. Those two teams. I don't. I don't see like this this giant gap at the top, and that is probably going to continue year over year. LeBron's going to get older, and he has a ton of miles on him, and he's built of iron. But you know, like you said, he ground through those playoffs last year. That's a lot of miles that you put on him last year. He's going to probably have. You know, he's probably going to by choice do the same thing this year. That team could play in different ways that I think would be more dangerous. And we've seen this for years with LeBron. He dictates the way the team plays. Right. And that is 
based a lot on how much he trusts his teammates to play different roles. But he's probably going to do similar things to what they did before, where he's going to take the ball and he is going to control the game. And that puts a lot of miles on him. And so next year, those miles will add up as well. And so I think what you said is correct, that it's, you know, this year, they're less likely to make the finals than last year, which they, LeBron's, you know, Heat teams were better than this, like I said. But, and that's going to just continue. Next year, they'll probably be less likely. And hopefully the Celtics will be in a position to knock them off. Um, hopefully they're in a position to knock them off this year. You know, maybe not likely, but it's possible. It's Certainly. possible. Yeah. Yeah. And Toronto's good. Toronto's well, that was, yeah, really I was just, gonna, just real quick on Toronto. I mean, are they, could you see a, a, a really knock, knock down, drag out fight in, in the Eastern Conference Finals between those two? Assuming the Celtics don't knock off Cleveland early, of course. Yeah. Uh, Certainly, you, you could. You're not going to say that Toronto, who have proven nothing in the playoffs ever, are anywhere, you know, they're not going to be a favorite against against the Cavaliers going into Cleveland with LeBron James and all that. But uh, Kyle Lowry's great. DeMar DeRozan is a foul-drawing machine. They have a lot of talent on that team that can do a lot of different things. They have people who can at least contest at the rim, because LeBron doesn't really shoot from anywhere other than the rim and the foul line these days. Uh, so I think that they're are, there are ways that, that Toronto could absolutely beat them. You know, like I said, I think there are te- other teams that could beat them as well. Toronto is, you know, definitely has the best chance of the East teams of, of beating the Cavs. And if, if I, to me, the, the missing piece, I think that, as you're right, I think about Toronto, I think Toronto has pieces all across the board. If Damari Carroll yeah. can look like Damari Carroll, I think that they've they've really put a real shock in the, in the Cleveland if they get if that it gets to that point because I think they have the pieces at the other ends of you know of the floor whether it's in the you know center and you know center position or in the backcourt you said with DeRozan Corey Joseph Lowry but if Carroll can keep LeBron to go from just to just be a star not a super duper supernova star as he was last year in the playoffs but just being really good but not you know <laughs> transcendent i think they i think you're right i think you know toronto can do that but toronto's got to win its second playoff series and it's in its history too first so yep. i i think they will do that i don't think uh they're going to have any problem getting to the second round but they do have some baggage there they're going to have to shake free, which should be interesting for them. So I want to maybe just kind of shift shift gears. I talked a little bit about the East. I think the West is, you know, well, we could get into that. I want to talk a little bit about the summer before we wrap up, um, Ryan. Obviously, we've now clinched the third worst record or the pick from the third worst record, and who knows what happens with draft lotteries. Um, you've laid out on, on, on Reddit, Celtics Reddit, I mean, some really great stuff in terms of some pathways that you see uh, that the Celtics could be using uh, to, to make Kevin Durant a possibility here. What, as you sit here now with Celtics in the fifth seed, maybe a chance for a spirited run that maybe boosts some values of, of players and, and, and views from afar towards what the Celtics are. What do you, what do you, what do you, what's your sense right now in terms of how this summer will play out? And that's a huge if because we don't know how the lottery works out, which obviously can have a huge impact, whether you're five or you're or you're number one, holding those picks. Yeah, absolutely. The um, my default position on this is always that major things won't happen. Now, LeBron or uh, Kevin Durant is Danny Ainge and I have Kevin Durant as our white whale, right? Like for years, <laughs> it's like how, how do you get this guy? ever on your on your team 
Um, and there are things that the team can do in the next couple of weeks that will make them a more attractive destination for free agents. There are things that are going to happen that are completely out of their control with ping pong balls that would make them a more attractive destination, like winning the lottery did for Cleveland bringing back LeBron because he could basically walk in and say, you know, we're going to trade that that Andrew Wiggins guy and we're going to get me some veteran help. And so I'm going to come now. Uh, so there are things that could happen in the relatively short term that would make the Celtics a much more attractive destination for players. The most likely thing that happens is that the Celtics make their draft pick, re-sign probably Jared Sollinger, probably let Evan Turner walk and go and play in the second tier free agent market and try to get somebody like maybe Nick Batum. Um, that's the, and, and part of this is that you have to play in the, free, in the free agent market at some point because with the salary cap going up like it is, the salary floor is going up like it is, there's going to be a lot of teams that uh, not only have the ability to spend money, but that basically have money to burn because, and the Celtics will be you know, potentially one of them because it's money you spend or lose. So, you know, that's the most likely thing to happen. And that's okay. Like, this is a 48-win team now that had the point differential of a 49 or 50-win team that is very young. You know, players who are 24, 23, 22, they get better. So you're going to have some organic growth within the team. You're going to potentially add a top, you know, something pick. It could be a top one pick. And you're going to, you know, that's a big infusion of talent. You go out and you sign another player who plays a position of need. Like I said, somebody like Nick Batum. You can throw out whatever name you want. You can Harrison Barnes, I'm not a big fan of, but somebody in that sort of mold that lets you keep the flexibility with Jay Crowder. Um, so, you, you know, you target somebody like that. You basically, you know, keep your powder dry, to, to use the term that is often used in this, and say next year we're going to have a whole bunch of cap space again. And maybe Kevin Durant decided that he's going to go back to OKC for one year, and we're going to take another year, and next year we're going to try to win 54 games and be the two seed and have another another Brooklyn pick coming, and that that's when we're making our big sales pitch to this much more attractive, potentially free agent market the, the year after. But that doesn't mean you don't set yourself up to go after the big fish now. If you get the number one pick or the number two pick or the number three pick, and you can trade it for Jimmy Butler, and that Jimmy Butler brings you Kevin Durant, well, you've pulled off 2000, you know, the 2007 offseason again. So that's the, the ideal. That's the 1% chance. But that 1% chance is so alluring that, that you build for it. You plan for it a year in advance or two years in advance or whatever it might be. And if it doesn't play out like it probably won't, then you move on. You move on like every other franchise does, and you try to get better next year and make yourself more attractive the next year. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely. I mean, it, it seems as though that there's such a, a a desire that it's immediately a failure if you don't get Kevin Durant or you don't get you know Kevin Love a year ago, or you know it. it that that's the only path to uh, success is to get what <laughs> the weight will of the moment, which is really what we talk about here so often. Is well, you got to get that guy at the deadline. You know, the Celtics are rumored to get X, and if they don't get X at the deadline, there's a failure. That's not true. I mean, there this is a this is a, a process that takes many years. It, there was a lot of crazy stuff that Sam Hinkie wrote in that 13-page manifesto, um, but one of the things I thought that was very, I thought, apt was that he was talking about how the acquisition to get Kevin Garnett, that Danny Ainge going through that, that wasn't something that was put together in, in a month. That was something that had seeds four or five years before that, that Danny had worked towards, planned towards, and put into motion. And it was only in 2007 that he was able to get that all those pieces 
you know, and the availability of that piece um, on from another team and it's someone who would be willing to negotiate with them to make that happen. So it's it's so much more complicated than simply to say, well, I've got the assets, now I've got to spend them. It's not that simple. Um, I, I like the Nick Batum uh, mention. As you said, I mean, it could be anybody, but th- they definitely need to fill areas of need. And and that's one I think Batum would be a, a great fit. Um, now springing him free from a team that you know has had a pretty has, has really had as good a year as the Celtics. That won't be easy, but you never know what happens in free agency. And uh, you know I think he's I think he would be a good fit here, particularly the fact that he actually can make outside shots, which is something <laughs> as yeah, as lacking. we discussed. <laughs> isn't isn't something that's uh uh in in in, in there isn't a, a lot a long supply of that on the Boston Celtics roster at the moment. Yeah, and I think actually what you know what you said about the I have my own very particular feelings about the Seventy Sixers and Sam Hinkie that for another day, but um, <laughs> the you know the reason that the Celtics had Kevin Garnett wasn't that Kevin McHale played with Danny Ainge. The reason that the Celtics got Kevin Garnett is because. Uh, Al Jefferson was a more attractive prospect for the Minnesota Timberwolves than Andrew Bynum was. If if the Phoenix Suns had wanted to trade Amari Stoudemire, who was a first-team All-NBA player the year before, so they were absolutely within their right to not make that move, they could have gotten Kevin Garnett. And that's how the Celtics, you know, offseason now may play out. If there's going to be other teams that have as much assets as the Celtics want, if there's a player out there, maybe they can't get him. But the reason the Celtics got Kevin Garnett is that they had a young player who was on the right timeline. And because... You know, a year before, they traded away a pick that became Brandon Roy to turn Rafe LaFrentz into Theo Ratliff. And it was a trade that, at the moment, Bob Ryan gave an F- in the newspaper. <laughs> and, and you understand why. Nobody knew that Brandon Roy was going to be as good as he was or have the sort of star-crossed history that he did. But Danny Ainge and even Doc Rivers came out that night and said, the reason that we made this trade is because... Rafe LaFrance's contract doesn't align with where our window of opportunity is, basically. I don't know the exact quote, but you know, that yep, was what they I were coming out saying. And it's and Theo Ratliff wasn't an expiring contract. He was he had one year less than Rafe LaFrance, but it was the year when the decision time for Paul Pierce was gonna come up, when um, you know, they knew that their young players were going to have reached a point where either they needed to become the center of the franchise and they were gonna trade Paul Pierce or that they would have enough value to trade for something else. And so they were aligning all of their assets years in advance and were had the foresight to also come back into the draft and trade for Ray John Rondo. But that sort of setup, you have to be doing that as you go along. You have to be saying, how do we maintain the flexibility to be ready when the big move comes without destroying our franchise so that we're still you know, a 48-win team now, potentially a 50-something win team next year, and if the move is there and you can become a 65-win team, then you have the ability to pull that trigger, but you are also progressing along a much more organic path where this team could add a top three pick this year, a top three pick next year, a top three pick the year after that, and a couple of years from now, organically, could be the Golden State Warriors. So you have those options, and, and that ability to plan years in advance is what gives you that. And Sam Hinkie, saying it or not, um, it's it's the right way to run a team, and and thankfully, you know, the Celtics are one of the two or three best run teams in basketball. So you always have that to fall back on. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, let me let me ask you before we wrap up here, uh, just real quick. Um, 
obviously there was a lot of rumors, and there's going to be a lot of rumors about certain guys being available. Um, we had Steve Pet on last Sunday, and he talked about how he could see in a situation where Danny perhaps will, would want to overpay, perhaps in trade, um, to get the guy he needs. Um, because in terms of when he, you know, as compared to in, in free agency, rather than trying to overpay through that process, because he can control the assets and he has a much greater control of the, of the discussion and the situation. I just wonder about what your thoughts are probably vis-a-vis, you know, acquiring some of these guys who seemingly were under contract with some sizable contracts, but again, within the scope of this new, uh, you know, this new TV deal aren't as quite as big. I'm looking at Jimmy Butler. I'm looking at, you know, maybe even, um, speaking of Cleveland, Kevin Love, two guys that maybe are on their way out. Of course, I think Jimmy Butler is on it. There are different reasons that, that Chicago might want to look off from Jimmy Butler. But I just wonder your thoughts on, on either of those guys and the, the potential of, of maybe acquiring there and maybe having a, a not quite as strong a play in, in free agency. Um, what do you think about that sort of concept? Yeah, and I, I thought that uh, you know I was sort of nodding along over when I when I listened to the episode with with Steve Bullpet, who I thought had a lot of really great points on a lot of things, including on this that um, the Celtics have the op, you know they have the option to go into the trade market very hard and to overpay potentially if they want to. I think that the ideal way for that to play out would be that they're making a move in combination with free agency. So, like I said, the, if if Durant is the, the dream scenario, then basically if Durant comes in and says, I'll sign there, but you have to trade the number one overall pick for somebody else, then you still do it. You do exactly what Cleveland did with LeBron, and you, right. you can do that. You can overpay in the trade market. And there are some values in that versus going out and trying to sign a second person like Al Horford. And, um, you know, I was one of the people who laid out sort of how you can get to double max cap space and how you could try to pitch Durant and Horford coming together or, or Horford and Batum or something like, you know, trying to put together something in free agency, uh, the max salaries go up with the salary cap. So if you're trading for somebody who signed even a max contract under the old salary cap, especially who's not, who's somebody who signed, you know, in their restricted free agency year under the lower max contract for players coming up for rookie salary, like Jimmy Butler, then acquiring that player gives you another, you know, seven, eight, ten million dollars depending on who your who your potential free agent targets are over signing a max player in free agency. So there are quite a number of advantages. It's also aligns your talent better if you're making those sorts of combination moves. Um, you know, Al Jefferson was a really nice player, but if you had had Al Jefferson and Ray John Rondo and Paul Pierce and Ray Allen, like your team wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense in terms of timelines. Similarly, Dragon Bender is probably not going to be ready to contribute on a team next year if you've also signed Al Horford and you have the team, you have Jay Crowder and Avery Bradley and the rest of the squad that you have now. It's, it's going to be hard to integrate a player that young into a team that's trying to win. So I'm all for getting a high lottery pick and talking to everybody who has a player like that, who has Jimmy Butler or Kevin Love or Blake Griffin, and talking to three team trades saying, you know, the Clippers don't need Dragon Bender either but maybe we can get the parts that they want that they think will make their team better in a three-team trade like what happened with Phoenix and Milwaukee and Philadelphia where Milwaukee 
didn't want this lottery pick that they should have taken. They wanted Michael Carter-Williams. But, you know, you put together a trade like that. So I think that there are a lot of options out there where the Celtics could go in, and especially if they win the lottery, go in and just say, you know, this is what we're putting on the table. This is the best asset anybody's going to trade this summer. And if you are thinking about trading one of your players, now is the time to talk to us. And that's potentially the right move. Perfect. Ryan, hey, thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. Love to have a chance to chat with you here on Celtic Stuff Live. I hope we can do it again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, writing on Celtics Hub these days. Oh, yeah, Celtics Hub. And yes. uh, come and join us on the Celtics subreddit and follow me on Twitter if you want my uh, ramblings. But I really appreciate you having me on. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Really appreciate it again, Ryan. And look for him Danger, at Danger Cart on yes, Twitter. Danger Cart. That's a good place to find him. And uh, and usually you'll find him if you're already liking me because I'm retweeting 99% of what he's already putting out there. So uh-huh. anyway, <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Thank you. All right, John. Ryan Bernardoni from Celtics Hub and Celtics Reddit. Follow him on Twitter at Danger card. See, I said it right this time. John, what do you think <laughs> what do you think are the takeaways from the interview? Like what was probably the things that stand out to you that Ryan said that maybe you and I hadn't thought of or need to be emphasized as everybody looks ahead to this this postseason matchup in round one? Well, I think I think the first thing is how good these Hawks are. Uh, you know, that that was the one thing to me in our conversation that really kind of stood out is, you know, not only are the Hawks really good defensively. I mean, we're talking top top two, three. I mean, right, some some metrics have them right behind, uh, you know, the Spurs as we were talking about. So I, I think that that's the thing that Brian's characterization of what their defense is going to do in terms of preventing people going to the rim, which kind of Isaiah, you know, what's going to happen with Isaiah going against this team that protects the rim so well. And then, you know, taking that to the next step further, which is putting a lot of pressure on the Celtic shooters and forcing the Celtic shooters to, you know, try to break that. And, of course, that not being a strength for the Celtics, uh, shooting in general, I mean, that's a concern. Um, so they got to go inside. They've I mean, got to, yeah. They, they've got to say, Jared Sollinger, you've got the size and the girth. You've got to establish yourself in the post to open up the perimeter. They have to. And and again, to my point before we got started with Amir Johnson, I was looking at it more from a you know defensive perspective, his performance, but I'll add to it as well. If he stays engaged in the offense and is able to get some points in the post just to suck that defense away so that they have those open looks for a guy like Kelly Olynyk, who could be you know a huge key for the Celtics in spacing the floor, but not if the mobile front court of Atlanta is able to have a hand in his face. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, one thing that I didn't really think about at the time, but you know, as Brian was talking about, you know, if you're going to protect the rim, and you're not going to be great on the on the arc generally, uh, a guy like Evan Turner really rises to the front because he does hit that mid-range shot so, so well. And if, if you're going to be so con- concerned with help uh, towards the bucket, that's going to leave the mid-range open. Now, and he's a good be, passer. That's the other. He key is a good passer. Yeah, because he can facilitate the offense. All he has to do is get them to respect the mid range for things to fall in line. He doesn't even have to take those shots all the time. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you know, there's that, and then and then the other thing we you know kind of coming off of that, the importance of 
the Celtics creating turnovers and, and using that as a way to get those free points to offset the fact that when you're in the half court, you're going to be operating at a, at a deficit compared to how good a, a defensive crew this, this Hawks team is. So using your defense to create offense may be the best antidote to you know going up against a team that, that really can, can lock a team down. Um, so to me, that right off the bat, you know, kind of going from that, I thought that's I I didn't realize how good they were until you know we were talking about this because well the, I've seen certainly we saw that Sunday night how in the fourth quarter it was <laughs> it was Mister Freezeville out there I mean they couldn't hit anything uh, and that was that was the stiffened defense of Atlanta and we think the Celtics have had a good defense uh, but but obviously and Ryan brought this up course is that you know since they've gone small the defense has slipped so you know they aren't the same defensive crew that they were can they get away with maybe going bigger going back to those bigger lineups so that they can match defense for defense i i don't know that might be one quiver in in, uh, brad stevens bag right there Mm -hmm. well you know another sign in this game is it will or in this series will be based more because if you look at the last matchup or the last game that the that when Atlanta beat beat Boston very recently, just prior to our last show, Bazemore went off as well, and yep. and really that whole you know Bazemore and Millsap just crushed them and Teague on the perimeter. So you're you're right, they really locked down the Celtics. Now keep in mind, you know Isaiah Thomas was definitely not on his game; he was six for nineteen. But Marcus Smart had a nice game. Evan Turner had a decent game. You know even Avery Bradley, he didn't shoot great. But he was—he had a, a decent game. The Celtics kind of moved the ball around effectively. But to your point, at the at the end of the day, uh, that defense by the Hawks, when they want to turn it on, can definitely cause problems. And that's where Boston is absolutely going to have to keep that ball moving. Right? That's yeah. the key. If, if they if they get into that, what they did in the first round last year against Cleveland, where the ball really isn't moving and the defense is is stopping that, then they're in trouble. Yep, and, and you know one thing that I think they can build off of with the Cleveland series last year, bringing into the Hawks series, is that you know they were they were probably consistently behind in those games, but they never gave up. They never they never you know gave up that 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 fight. And you know going into this year, they're a better team this year. They're playing against a weaker opponent this year. Um, that experience. This is when you talk about the value of of making the playoffs versus not. And I think we're going to see that readily. I think we're going to see a Celtics club ready for the bright lights. Uh, they're going to be playing against a team that with some veteran players who've been there and done that before. Teague, Horford, Millsap, Korver, Bazemore even. Um, those guys have all been there. Cephalosha. All those guys have, have fought through this before. And so... The idea that somehow they won't, you know, they aren't going to be ready. And no, I think the Celtics are going to be ready. I think they're going to have last year's memory in their mind. And boy, when they get that first win of the series, um, I think that's got to be a real good feeling for Brad Stevens and those guys because they were so close last year. There were so many games that, you know, they, they didn't have the talent. But there were very; those were some very, very close games against the Cavs last year. Oh, chemistry is way better this year. There's no doubt. Yeah, I mean they they've learned a lot. They barely had 
any time to really put it together with Isaiah Thomas. And even that first-round performance led me to say at the beginning of this season, I thought Isaiah was better coming off the bench. And he's actually been much better defensively than we expected, and he's been a much better facilitator on offense to put all of this together this year. He's earned his spot and more. He yeah. earned his spot on the All-Star roster. And it that in that respect... This team is light years ahead of what we saw last year, and I think the Celtics are, to your point, much more in a much better position to make noise. How big would a game one victory be for the Celtics, right? Because essentially that would give them home court advantage. They'd have some, and the other thing that they have going for them is rest in between games. So even if Jay Crowder is fighting through, or or there's a conditioning, you know, just getting back to his condition, because I think he's one of the biggest key players, and shout out to Jay King for just an awesome article teeing up the postseason and Jay Crowder that he put out on on uh, Friday morning. Just a fantastic article. If you haven't read it, you got to go check it out. Um, really showing Jay Crowder where he's been and, and where he is now and how he got here. But I think that's going to... on. on I think the time off between games is going to be a benefit just based on where the Celtics are now. Earlier in the season, we might not have said that because they were so good on the second game of back-to-backs. But I think at this point, you know, some of these injury issues, some of the, the conditioning concerns, just the setbacks that they had physically trying to stay healthy down the stretch and getting into the postseason, I think time off between games is going to be an advantage for them. So I guess to tie that back into that first first game win if they were to win game one i don't think we'd see a letdown in game two at home no i think you're right and and well and, well it's they're still on the road for game two but game three. Oh, right exactly yes but, but the other thing and i think that that's a really good point justin because you know they the, they're they're not just every other day they've got two days off sunday monday they're off they're, then they don't play then they, they play tuesday then they don't play again until friday so you know they've got I mean, they're going to play four games in in not, almost nine days, so there's there's a lot of time for rest. Now, I go back to Avery Bradley's comment uh, after the Atlanta game, where he says, "We're tired." You know, we were tired. Like I've never heard Avery Bradley say that. No, never that heard was Avery... a, that was a huge concern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we talked about that. You know, when when we had Bullpet on last week. I mean, that was that's a that's a real worry. So you know, look, they. they They've been off. They'll be have been off since Wednesday when they play on Saturday. And they'll practice, but you know they're also while they're going to be traveling to Atlanta, which you know isn't you know next door. It's not like playing Toronto or New York, but it's 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 certainly not going out to the West Coast. I still think there's some lingering stuff with play on the West Coast and coming back and time changes and all those things. You know about this because you've been, <laughs> you've been on the Because I here. literally just did it this week, and, and even with my eight cups of coffee this morning, <laughs> having been in Vegas all week, long, long days, and then flying back yesterday afternoon, you're absolutely right. I'm, uh, you know, I'm definitely off my game, even to the point where I thought that the Celtics were going to play game two at home. So there you go. See? Right. So, you know, what if, if, if a, a finely tuned machine like Justin Poole and it can be, can be uh, battled you know, by a West Coast trip. Absolutely. <laughs> what could this do to, you know, Bradley? I had four networking, in, four networking events in three nights. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 
that's brutal. That's brutal, man. You know, you got to talk to the league office about that one. But uh, uh, I just, I just need a day off between games. That's all. That, that's what it is. See, so that would have been, that would have been helpful. Uh, I mean, generally, like you said, I would, I would look at that series and say, oh, I don't know if I like that space. They've got older players. We got younger guys. But I feel like the way the Celtics have, this, these Celtics have ground themselves through these games this season. There's not a lot. There wasn't a lot left in the tank. Now we're gonna see if they've been able to recharge their batteries here. Again, they, nobody played more than 25 minutes on on Monday night against the, uh, you know the Hornets. On on Wednesday night, obviously, um, was a huge comeback. They should they should be they should be ready to go. They should be ready to go. They should be ready to fight through this. Um, Saturday night will be a really interesting time to see how these guys measure up. Uh, but I think it's going to be a tough series. I think it's going to go long. Um, I don't know. I want to hear your prediction, but I'm going to say Celtics in seven. Yeah, Celtics I, have not lost the Atlanta Hawks in a playoff series since 1958. Since the wow. 1958 finals. Where'd you pull that stat out of your butt? Right out of my tuchus. Uh, right out of the tuchus? No, no. <laughs> I was actually talking to Mr. Triple Double on Twitter. Everyone knows Jay. Uh, Mr. Triple Double has brought that that stat to my way. So uh, thanks to him for that. But yeah, yeah. So I'm going to say in six. I can't so. see it in seven. I, I'm. That's a great statistic. I had. No, I mean, I obviously had no idea. I bet you know at some point along the way, Sean Grandy would have told us. You know, hey, here's a here's a stat for you. But, uh, he loves the record stat. Uh, you know Slipping. what what the yeah. records are. I know he's got to beat Mister Double O Treat Double O T. Jeez, <laughs> nine cups. I'm telling you what, man. It's no joke. I'm just tired. Like Avery Bradley, I am just tired. <laughs> but either way, all I'm saying is I think it's in six. I can't see them winning two on the road. Um, I think the issue for them is let's say they take game one. All right, so they lose game two. They've got to hold home court the rest of the way. Getting two on the road is tough. Everybody knows it. That's why you want home court advantage. They're going to be digging you know, out of the – out of that disadvantage in any series that they play in the postseason. I think they got to take game one, and I think they got to take every one of them at home. The good news for them is that the crowd at home is going to be disgusting this year. I think the way that this team has endeared themselves to the fan base, they're going to get a huge lift. And I wanted to, I, I can't remember if we asked this question uh, in a previous interview with one of our guests or not, it was a question I wanted to ask and never did. But home court advantage and the crowd advantage, do you see it? Does it does it bring the opponent down or does it only bring the home team up? And you see what I mean, right? Like when the crowd is going yeah. crazy because the home team is doing well, does that also, to a player, push them down a little bit on the opponents? Or are they just so professional at this point they don't even hear the crowd? But... If you're the home team, it helps elevate your confidence and your energy level and get you through maybe some moments when you're not playing your best and you're trying to get yourselves back on track. I think it's the latter. I mean, again, like you said, I'm not a player. I don't, I don't, I'm not a finely tuned machine like you. So I, <laughs> I think, I think that, I think it brings, it's more of bringing up the teams, bringing up the home team than tearing down. Now, I think there are instances where that's not the case. I, th- I think when you're in, a situation where it's not just yay our team, but 
we want to burn your your bus team bus to the ground. Uh, and I'm thinking of Eastern Conference Finals in '87 against the Pistons. I'm thinking about Game Six against the Rockets in '80 in '86. I'm thinking about you know there are times when I think the team the the, the crowd turns against the team in such a way that it is it, it can bring a team down. Um, but I don't think on on par that that's usually where things go. I think on par. Yeah, especially in the postseason. Yeah, right? well. Like, maybe in the regular season, it can, you know, it's a long season. You're in the middle of a road trip. Right. You don't have the fight in you. You know, that kind of, you know, we're tired, that whole thing. Maybe in the regular season it could bring them down, but in the postseason it's probably not likely at all, well, is I, it? I, well, I guess in those notable exceptions where something has happened that has amped up the 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 juice to a billion, you know, and, you know, the Cavs series in 2010, um, that was what I had a pleasure of, of being in the locker room for and being covering. I mean, that was, that was otherworldly, the way that the fans were at LeBron, understanding what was at stake and what, you know, that he may be leaving and all that. Um, you know, those, those situations, I think, you know, I think that can go two ways with with the the attention of the crowd. I think generally, though, it's it's the home crowd lifting your team up in a first round series. I guess a, a club like the Hawks, where you really have no animosity to speak of. I think it's it's it's. Uh, it's... Oh, there'll be some animosity by the end of this series. There might be. There might. No, be. there's gonna be. You really think I'm, so? I, oh yeah, I think this one's gonna get. This one's gonna get feisty. Really? I I do. Wow. I think it will get very feisty because the Celtics. I again, they're at a disadvantage, and and they're like I to, for them to win. So the concern for me, you go to seven games. I think the Celtics might lose that one on the road. That's why I'm I'm not predicting six. I'm saying if the Celtics win, they're gonna win in six. Um, I think there's a, a a very, I think it's very likely to go seven. You know, for you know a couple of reasons that you mentioned, but. Uh, just also because of the way the teams match up, I think it's very likely. I like the Celtics' chances to go seven because Brad Stevens is going to have time to make adjustments in between games. So I don't think that the Celtics have any shot of getting um, blown out. As a matter of fact, I don't think that they have a, a chance of getting swept if they make it past this and go to Cleveland for that same reason. You know, a year under their belt, some experience. I, I think they're going to be, you know, I, I think Cleveland has firepower and the Celtics do not get by Cleveland whatsoever. But I don't think they get swept this year just because I think time in between games for, for Brad Stevens and his staff and because of how feisty this Celtics club is, that they're going to go down swinging and they're going to they're going to land some haymakers here and there. Yeah, but yeah, I, I don't think this series in seven for the Celtics. I don't, yeah. you know, I think their odds of winning the series if it goes seven is probably twenty five percent. So that's why I say I think it'll get feisty because I think they know they have to take one of the first two games on the road. And what we have seen in the past with some teams is they come out trying to get that so hard in game one because they know if they take it in game two, they got to win three straight. Like game one victory is a huge. Uh, momentum swing because if they don't win game two, it's okay, sort of, so to speak, right? right? Let's get this one out of the way. Let's take home court advantage back, and then we just have to hold court the rest of the series. And again, like I said, win it in six. So I think game one is going to be so scrappy for that reason. It's going to set a tone. I think we're. I think we are going to see a scrappy series. Wow. 
Well, then. Okay. Well, there we go. You heard it here first, folks. I mean, I I think it's it, it's possible. I, I mean, I guess you never know. I just I look at this Hawks team and like who's gonna fight with Kyle Korver? Who's gonna you know who's gonna? Who's it's, gonna it's all gonna be it's all gonna be Bazemore. It well it, you're you're exactly right about that. And, and I, I also want to say this about Bazemore. Bazemore was a guy that Ainge, Ainge was looking at a couple years ago before he went to Golden State and and I think he was on or he was in Golden State I guess when that was going down. Um, that was the guy Ainge was looking at. They just couldn't make it work, and there was no room to, to get him. But but he's the guy that Ainge has liked. And, and tell me that Bazemore wouldn't be a perfect fit right there, you know. So I, I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait to get started. Let's get these playoffs going, baby. Absolutely. All right, everybody, just a quick reminder. Join me for the CLNS postgame show after game one, and we'll be able to talk about whether or not some of my predictions and, and John's predictions and Ryan's breakdowns were accurate, and we'll see if this if this game is going to be a scrappy one or not. So Saturday night after the game, John and I are going to be back towards the end of next week, probably probably regular Probably regular release time next the yeah. the following Monday. So we'll be uh, what we'll be four games into the se- into the series at that point, John. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, that's after Game Four. So Game Four okay. is Sunday night, and hopefully by then we're talking about a a three one Celtics lead so they can clinch in six. Perfect. That's what that's what that's that's what I have my eyes on. But as the season finished, I I predicted the split. Uh, of the final two games, but I also predicted fourth seed, not fifth seed. So we know how these predictions go, and uh, you know I'm sure we'll be eating a little crow here and there. But that's what we like to do. That's what that's what talk sp- Celtic sports talk is all about. There's no way to predict the future. Nobody's Nostradamus here, and uh, you know we've got our keys, but I'm sure there are plenty of our listeners that have their own keys. And because we are doing live post-game shows, I'm looking forward to listening to some old friends call into the show uh, and be able to uh, converse back and forth a little bit. But also engage John and I on Twitter all throughout the Celtics postseason at CLNS underscore Duke and CLNS underscore CLNS. See, here I go again. CSL <laughs> underscore Duke and CSL underscore Justin, and I will get myself reacclimated to the <laughs> to the Eastern time zone and be back on point for our next show and the post-game show on Saturday night. Everybody have a great week and enjoy game one and the first round of Celtics playoff basketball. Celtics stuff live.